Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. Agencies have until the end of the day today to close two big cybersecurity vulnerabilities. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency issued an emergency directive after software company Ivanti discovered vulnerabilities in two widely used products. Federal News Network's Jason Miller joins me now with the latest. Jason, what's going on? What are these vulnerabilities in Ivanti software and how are attackers taking advantage of them? There are two big ones in their secure virtual private network software products. And, Tom, these are VPNs. I mean, we all use VPNs in one way or the other. Whether we use Avante or not, it's, it's, that's what they're trying to find out. But these are two big ones that Avante found January 10th in the web component of what they call Avante Connect Secure and Avante Policy Secure. Now, Eric Goldstein, CIS's Executive Assistant Director for Cybersecurity, describes the problems that these vulnerabilities would or could create for agencies. The vulnerabilities would exploit it in tandem, uh, could allow an attacker to execute arbitrary commands on a, on a vulnerable system and gain persistent access, which they could then use to access sensitive information or move within the system to achieve additional objectives on the target network. This is Eric Goldstein talking to reporters Friday, says over the past week, there's been some widespread attacks using these vulnerabilities, he says, to gain deep access into networks, to steal data, or just for that matter of like persistence. Oh, we're here, we're inside, let's wait till we uh, can achieve other goals because we're already past the, the initial sets of security. So, Tom, these are very serious, and I think that shows why D, uh, DHS put out those uh, emergency directives. And agencies now have a homework assignment to close them. What do they have to exactly do here? They do, and it was a quick turnaround. I'm sure a lot of chief information security officers worked over the weekend, Tom, to really start to really address these things. Uh, Avante did put out some help to address these vulnerabilities, but CISA's Goldstein says agencies should immediately do what the company says, but even go further to ensure they don't have these problems that maybe they don't know about. I'll particularly note that the directive requires agencies to implement uh, temporary mitigation instructions that are in place in lieu uh, of a patch, which has not yet been issued, as well as to run a tool called Integrity Checker, which is provided by the vendor uh, to assess compromise. Uh, And so agencies are required to take uh, those steps uh, and provide uh, feedback back to uh, CISA. And Tom, I think one of the things you heard Eric Goldstein say there is make sure you haven't been impacted because you may not know that you're running it or you may think you put the the mitigation factor in because there is no patch yet from Avante, but maybe it didn't take or it's not working well. Or maybe you have been uh, attacked and they were successful and you have to kind of clear out the network in some way. So I think there's still a lot of concern about what could happen. And this is also why a week after this directive gets issued, so next Friday, this coming Friday, uh, agencies must report back to CISA using a template that CISA has provided to inventory all their instances of Avante Connect Secure and Avante Policy Secure on their networks. And including all the details, action taken, and the results. And then by June 1st, which seems like a long time away from now, but CISA will report back to the White House, Office of Management Budget, and upstairs to their uh, headquarters, Homeland Security Department, what the status of this Avante effort is and any outstanding issues that they haven't closed. So we'll still be talking about this, Tom, for quite a while. And I guess one of the questions would be how widespread this is, how big a problem is this for agencies and which agencies? And I guess the private sector, too, is also a user of Avanti software. 
absolutely this is a big problem. We just don't know how big it is, especially for the federal government. As you heard Goldstein say, maybe 15 agencies. But, again, a lot of the work that happened over the weekend, have a lot of the work that's going to go on the rest of this week, Tom, I think they're going to be really trying to understand it. Now, Goldstein seems to believe the impact is limited on federal civilian agencies. At this point, we are assessing that the potential exposure on the federal civilian government uh, is is limited. Uh, there were, uh, you know, around I will say 15 or uh, agencies or so that were using these products in the first instance, and they have mitigated those vulnerabilities. And so, we are not assessing a significant uh, risk to the federal enterprise. But we know that that risk is not zero. And given the the widespread exploitation activity uh, around the country and the globe, as you noted, that's precisely why we issued today's directive to ensure that every agency is both taking the mitigation step and also running the integrity checker tool to confirm that they have, in fact, not been impacted. Now, CISA began working with agencies as soon as Avante made these problems public. Uh, Eric Goldstein says there have been calls with agency security operations centers and others. And CISA actually has used its own tools to determine how big of a problem this is as well. You know, things, whether it's uh, continuous diagnostics and mitigation or other similar tools that they have uh, through the agency dashboard. Right. And this is an emergency directive. These don't happen that often from CISA. I suppose if they wanted, they could find a reason to put one out every day. They could easily have CISOs jumping through their skin constantly. So CISA, in issuing an emergency directive, they must mean this one really does matter. Absolutely. And again, as you said, they don't put out these all the time. They use them very judiciously. So when they do issue one, it is that big deal. Now, Goldstein says he's not ready to place any blame on any one country or any one organization yet. But he says there are a lot of similarities with other attacks perpetrated by China over the last few years. And I think this is why... They're putting out an emergency directive because they said, well, we can't say who did it or, or, or how they did it. We know that it has, there's a lot of things that are saying, OK, that, that raises big red flags. Now, Goldstein says this type of attack also has the government on edge because of what happened a few years ago, Tommy, if you remember the Pulse Secure vulnerability. Certainly the campaign targeting uh, Pulse Secure devices uh, from, from two and a half years ago increased our focus um, as an agency and federal enterprise on securing edge devices uh, more generally. Uh, for example, uh, it contributed to our decision to issue uh, Binding Operational Directive 2302 last year, requiring agencies to remove or remediate exposed network management interfaces uh, for, for edge devices. And so we have put a tremendous amount of effort in securing the types of devices and products uh, more generally. Um, but as noted, uh, we remain engaged in the work of ensuring that every instance of these products across the federal enterprise has been mitigated and that we are validating that that compromise has not occurred. Again, this is Eric Goldstein talking about this new vulnerability in Avante virtual private network software. Tom, I think it's a good sign that the edge devices, the Pulse Secure experience that they've had shows that they've already done a really better job than maybe we've seen over the you know previous 10, 15 years of securing these edge networks devices. But again, a lot of concern based on, again, the similarities that they've seen with China. So uh, CISOs were busy over the weekend. They'll be busy the rest of the week, I'm sure, and into uh, much into the new year. Right. And two thoughts come to mind. One, if Ivanti was vulnerable, then in some ways this is a classic supply chain attack. A major, you know, prime supplier of the software to the government, you know, was compromised. 
And in another way, it kind of shows the importance of the cybersecurity maturity model certification program, even for cybersecurity vendors have to be protected, have to protect themselves. One of the reporters on the call on Friday asked a very similar question, Tom. They asked, is this a issue that Avanti should have known about? Was this a zero day? How would you determine? And Goldstein, to his credit, was very politically correct. He said, well, you know, we're still, we work with all vendors. We want, we really want to push the secure by design software effort. And he was not ready to blame Avante or any other software vendor for a vulnerability like this. And, and Tom, I think, you know, to Sis's credit, they're trying to get in front of it. And, and I think the work they've done with CDM, the work they've done with some of their other efforts, uh, Zero Trust, as an example, are really addressing, hey, we know there will be vulnerabilities in software no matter how good we think we can do. So we have to be ready for them and limit the exposure and limit the problems that could occur should we get compromised. Federal News Network's Jason Miller. Thanks so much. Always a pleasure. And he'll have a story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect, so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people. And in order to do that, we really value our people. We want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected, and also that their managers care about them. So well-being is important. Psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard. So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the, the behaviors that we allow and we uh, you know, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences and that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I 
I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking, that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, and we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user, as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency. And I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm going to go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I want to hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, 
and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped. And I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, Mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title chief people officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with an intentional focus on culture because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth and um, engagement programs and listening programs, that's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in, would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how how are things going? Um, Because we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role, And over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. Neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, 
thinking about, can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure, either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally, that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life, and I think because, first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career. And that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years, yeah. um, and work alongside you. Uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues. It's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here, and thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.